good to see a lot of you here, and uh, you braved uh, COVID-19 to come worship with us. And, you know, for those of you who are uh, still joining us online, uh, welcome as well. And then we also have our, our chapel and our venue, and then Northridge and Cactus uh, that's joining us for our time in the Word. God has been so good to us as a church, as a community during this time, and, you know, I've been sharing in my weekly update with you guys uh, by video every Thursday night that one of the things that the Lord has been teaching me over the last few months during this time is the absolute power and centrality of prayer. Uh, I, I've been telling you that over and over again, that when, uh, you know, times like this hit, and it should be really all the time for us as fallen human beings, but especially when times like this hit, we realize how dependent we are, how as human beings, how fragile we are, and our absolute need for him in our lives. And I felt that immediately in March, and as we were all you know, doing this social distancing, and as the church was kind of like a ghost town here for a couple of months, but I was here every day, I, uh, I, I had some new, wonderful experiences with the Lord in prayer. And I shared those with many of you uh, online. In fact, I call them the five P's of prayer. And I hope we continue in this vein where we pray for God's protection over us as his people and over our community for his provision in times of need, for a felt sense of his presence in our lives, for his power to endure difficult times, and then obviously for his peace that he wants to give us, no matter what happens. And so that idea of protection, provision, presence, power, and peace has been an incredible guide to me uh, in, in my times of prayer. And the reason that's important right now is we're gonna pray as we go into our time in the word. And in case you haven't noticed, things are kind of tumultuous in our culture right now. Uh, there's some brothers and sisters in Christ as well as some brothers and sisters in humanity that are experiencing some incredible injustice and it's coming to a head. And I'm just telling you right now that those five Ps that you've been praying or hopefully joining me in praying for the, for the COVID-19 can now be applied much to the injustices around us. And we need to act and pray uh, in response as a church. So let's do this. As we go to our time in the word in the book of Jonah, let's bow together as a church right now, all of us together, and let's pray uh, over our community and over our church. God, our Heavenly Father, it has been good to regather to worship. And Lord, as we've been praying all along during this time, we pray, God, for your, your protection over your church and your people, for your provision in times of need. God, for a deep sense of your presence to be felt because we know that you are with us. We pray for your power to endure difficult times and certainly, Father, for your peace that you promised to even pass understanding when we trust you. And Father, I pray that as we regather now as a church, some of us and the rest of us still online, probably for a while, God, I pray that as we see a rise in, in cases of this virus and who knows where all this is going, that God, you continue to have your hand of protection and provision and presence and power and peace upon us as a church. Help us to be smart and wise, Father, as we begin to come together, but hopefully in a responsible way. Lord, protect those who are still vulnerable in our church, and Lord, especially many of that might be staying home because they need to during this time. May they have a deep sense of your presence with them and your goodness with them during this time. And Father, we think of what's going on in our culture right now too. 
that we have some brothers and sisters in Christ, some people of color that, that have just been experiencing injustice for such a very, very long time. And those strides have been made, Father, when we talk to any of them, they tell us stories, horror stories, of how they have been deeply hurt and wounded unfairly in our culture. And Lord, for any of us who think rightly about our culture, certainly we don't want that. Like the Bible says, we want to pursue justice, pursue mercy, pursue fairness when it comes to how we view and treat those around us. And so, Father, we pray that you would bring that more and more to our culture. We pray, God, that you would bring justice and mercy and healing to our brothers and sisters, both in Christ and in humanity. And help us, Lord, to do our part and to know what you would cause us to do as agents of action as well. God, we're learning in this great book that we're studying right now, the book of Jonah, that you are front and center even when we as humanity are running from you. And so, Father, I pray that as we do a deep dive in that today, that you might speak to, to us, each one of us individually, collectively as a whole, and minister to us now through your word. And I pray these things, as I always do, in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. And hopefully we can all say together, amen and amen. Well, as I hinted to in my prayer, we're in week two of a five-week series here out of the Old Testament book of Jonah, and we've entitled the series, Running from God, Running from God. And last week, we opened up this story by, uh, that many of us are familiar with by noting that this story is all about an Old Testament prophet by the name of Jonah, <clears throat> who lived in 780 BC, who received a typical prophetic call from God to go to an erring people, in this case the Ninevites, and tell them to turn to God or else. We noted that Nineveh was the capital of, of Assyria back then, a very secular, decadent nation. And it would be just like God to tell one of his prophets to go to an erring nation and tell them to turn to him, to get right with him, or some bad things just very well might happen. And so the call that Noah received is a very normal call for a prophet, but what makes this book unique, what makes this book so relevant to you and I today is that Jonah decides not to listen to God. Remember that? And he says that when God calls him to go to the Ninevites, he says, no, I don't want to do that. We'll see why as we read on. And he runs the other way. In other words, Jonah runs from God in his life. And we ended last week by noting that if a godly Old Testament prophet, a man as good as Jonah, could have times in his life where he runs from God, then you and I are goners. Then you and I in our lives are probably going to run as well. That's what we established that as fallen human beings, even as fallen followers of Jesus, we have a tendency to run from God in our lives two other things. And that's all I asked you to own last week as we opened up this series. In fact, it ended last week by making it very practical and pointing to four things, at least four, that we tend to run to in our lives. We run from God to sin. 
We run from God to relational avoidance of him. We just shut him out. We run from God to saying no, like Jonah did, to a clear call in our lives. So he tells you to do something, you say no, and you run. And then lastly, we noted that we run God to what, to, to what I call fellowship avoidance. We just avoid other Christians. We avoid church. We shut down. And in so doing, we're running from God. Here's my point. I have yet to meet anybody who who is honest with themselves in their spiritual life who at some time or another has not run from God in their lives. And so now, as we move into the second part of our journey, I've called today's message still running from God because we've got to explore more about this initial idea of running from God. I want to tell you a story of one of my favorite historical runners from God, a guy by the name of Francis Thompson. You can obviously tell he lived a long time ago. Francis Thompson was born in the mid-1800s in England. He was born into a Catholic family, a very strong Catholic family. His father was a doctor. And when Thompson was 18 years old, his father had great ambitions for his son and thought, hey, let's have him become a priest. Because back then, and like today, to become a priest was a high calling. And so he sent his son to a seminary, and, and very shortly after his son got to the seminary, the head of the order, uh, he, they didn't have email, but he got in touch with Thompson's father and, and sent him this note. He said, I don't think it's the holy will of God that he should be a priest. He has a natural indolence to him that has been an obstacle in his life all up up to this point. And yet if he can shake this off, he has the ability to succeed in any career. So ixnay on the priest day for Francis Thompson. So then he decides to go and try his hand at some other vocations, this young man. First, he decides that maybe he'll become like his father and go into medicine. But he failed the medical exams five times. So then he decides to become a book salesman, fails at that. A shoe salesman fails at that. Then he enlists in the army, kind of a latch diseffort back then, and was discharged for being unfit. He then tried to sell matches on a street corner. He held cabs for pedestrians. And eventually, none of that worked. And so he turned to what so many people turn to when life doesn't work out. He turned to drugs. They didn't have meth labs back then. It was called opium. So he became addicted to opium, and he ended up on the street. And eventually, Francis Thompson, like so many people that get involved with drugs, got to the end of his rope. He hit absolute rock bottom. And when he did, he turned, and we're going to talk about this later today and next week, he turned back to God. And when he turned back to God, he finally found his vocation. And that is that he was really good at writing poetry. Some of you already recognize this. Francis Thompson is one of the great poets of a few generations ago. And when he hit rock bottom, he wrote a poem that's become very famous over the last almost 200 years or 150 years. It was a poem called The Hound of Heaven about his experience of running from God and then hitting rock bottom and turning back to God. And let me read for you the first stanza of this poem here. And you'll start to catch on about the journey that he had initially here in running from God. This is how he says it. He says, I fled him, meaning God. 
I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways. Of my own mind and in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Up this day'd hopes I sped. <laughs> He's a runner just like you and me. And though you might have a difficult time relating to all the ins and outs of Thompson's story, because maybe you didn't have to hit rock bottom like he did, here's what you need to latch on to right now, gang, before we move on. And that is that there is a little bit of Jonah, there's a little bit of Francis Thompson in every one of us. That's the whole point of this story. That when we read about a godly prophet or a man in the 1800s running from God, either through behavior or through sin or through fellowship avoidance or through whatever it might be, intimacy with God, avoiding that. We all need to relate to this and realize we do the same thing that we have a tendency as well to run from God. Now, once we've established this tendency that we all have a tendency to run, the $10 question becomes, and this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on this morning, what does God do when we run from him? Have you ever thought about that? What is God's response when you and I pull a Jonah and stray or wander? And thankfully, the rest of chapter one of Jonah will go on to tell us exactly what God does when we run. Now, I'm gonna warn you right now, Cactus Venue and Chapel in Northridge, I'm gonna warn you that many times you can't predict what God is going to do, but the Bible's gonna show us right now that when we run from him, we can almost with 100% certainty predict what God is going to do. And you're gonna like this. So I'm not going to read uh, the entire rest of chapter one. You can do that on your own, but we're going to drill down in just a few minutes on some key verses that show us what God does when we run. But first, let me give you a Cliff Notes version of the action of the rest of this chapter because a, a lot is going on that we need to be aware of. After Jonah receives his initial call from God to go to the Ninevites, you might remember that it says in verse 3 that he went down to the seaport of Joppa along the Mediterranean Sea. And there he finds a ship going to a far away land. The name is Tarshish. And that's important because Tarshish was the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. So he's running away from God's call. And he pays for the fare on this boat and he gets on board. But not too long after they go out to the Mediterranean Sea, a huge storm arises, and it's such a huge storm that it scares even these rough and tumble sailors, and the text says it was threatening to destroy the ship. And because all people tend to be spiritual in nature, even if they won't admit it, these sailors, who the text seems to suggest were not Jewish and didn't go to church very often, nevertheless are terrified, and they all start calling out to God for help, at least as they understand God. And this is where the Bible is actually kind of funny, because as they're crying out to God, having this makeshift prayer meeting above deck, where's Jonah? He's down below deck, and he's sleeping through this storm. 
Now commentators wrestle with why in the world and how could Jonah be sleeping in the midst of this storm? And our only guess is that he was so exhausted from running from God, so depressed from running from God, that his best bet was to sleep. Which kind of clues us in that no one is ever joyful when they are running from God. So the captain eventually goes down and says to Jonah, hey, things are bad up top, you gotta come up. And meanwhile... While that's happening, these sailors cast lots. It's an ancient tradition to try to figure out uh, the divine and what's going on. They cast lots to see who it is that God might be mad at that's causing this storm that's threatening their lives. And as you guessed it, the lot falls on Jonah. So they drag Jonah atop uh, the deck and he confesses to everything. He says, I'm, I'm a Hebrew, I'm from Israel, I serve the real God, and the real God is mad at me because I'm running from him, and that's why this storm is upon us. And these sailors, though uneducated or no, they're not dumb, they realize that we got a real live man of God on our hands who, who, who has ticked off a real live God, and we're caught in the crossfire. And so Jonah being depressed and kind of miserable because he's running from God says, I got a plan, I know how to solve this, throw me overboard and this will get me and God out on the sea away from you and I'll bet you the storm will calm. And these sailors don't want to do that. They don't want to kill Jonah and they don't want to get God even more mad. So they hem and haw for a while. But eventually, after exhausting all options, they decide to save their own skins. They toss Jonah overboard and lo and behold, the storm ceases. And it's here that Jonah is swallowed by a great fish. We usually say a whale, even though the text says a great fish. A whale is the largest fish that we know of. And the sailors now turn to God and they start to beseech him and make sacrifices to him as best they can in their understanding of him. And with this chapter one ends, with Jonah having been swallowed by a great fish and the sailors now happy that their lives are no longer in danger. That's the action of chapter one. And though there's a lot of things going on in this opening chapter of Jonah, I mean, if you tracked with me, you got the boat, you got the sea, you got the sailors, you got depressed Jonah, you got casting of lots, prayer and repentance, Jonah getting thrown overboard. The key thing that I need you guys to notice, this is really important for our theme of running, is where God is in the midst of all of this activity. And this is going to be really important for you and me today. When the storms of life are all over your life, you tend to think that God is not with you. You tend to think that God is not front and center. You tend to think, even when you're running from him, that he might be far off. Jonah is going to teach us otherwise. I don't want us to miss what the text shows us of, where, of what God is up to and where God is while all of this is taking place with Jonah running from him and with the storm in the middle of the Mediterranean. Three verses that will clue us into where God is. First, look at verse four and what it says. It says, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. I put it there in yellow so you wouldn't miss it. The Lord hurled a great wind. I think that's rather significant. So it's not just a discriminant weather pattern going on here, but God himself is in that weather. He's in that storm. Interesting, hang on to that. 
And then notice verse 17, it says something similar. It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So again, the Lord appointed. So it wasn't chance that this great big fish was there, but God himself was guiding this monster to be there at the exact time and place that God wanted him. The Lord appointed So twice we see, right at the beginning of Jonah's running and then toward the end of it, because next week we'll see what happens in the belly of the whale, but twice we see that the the author makes it very clear that God was front and center in all of Jonah's running. It's not by chance, it's not by accident, it's not by natural law, but the God of the universe, the maker and creator of all, who is intimately involved in this world of ours, he hurled the sea, he appointed the fish. He was right there, for our purposes today, right behind Jonah through it all. And then as if this were not enough, we then even have evidence, a third verse that clues us into the fact that Jonah knew that God was with him as well. Look at this verse, look at verse nine. Jonah is talking to the sailors when they're, they're saying, you know, hey, a divine being is all mad at us. And Jonah says to the sailors, well, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. It's fascinating that that phrase, God of heaven, is a rare phrase in the Old Testament. It only appears about 22 times in all of the Old Testament. It was first coined by Abraham back in the book of Genesis, and it literally means the God who rules sovereignly from heaven on all the affairs of the earth. And so Jonah is saying, here's the God whom I serve. He's a God that I cannot get away from. He is a God who is sovereign and providential over all. He's everywhere present. And Jonah knows this. So add it all up. This is going to be very important for where we're going in just a second. God was in the sea. God caused the whale to swallow Jonah. And Jonah knew that God was doing this. In short, don't miss it, as Jonah was running from God, God was running right behind Jonah the entire time. As he traveled down to Joppa, as he selected the boat to run away on, as he was sleeping in the cabin, depressed and hiding, as he was having to explain to the sailors why this storm was raging, God was there in the storm, in the whale, in his ever-present help with Jonah He was chasing Jonah and trying to get his attention. And in case you haven't figured it out already, guys, the reason that this is so important for you and me today is because many, if not most Christians today, do not realize where God is when they run from him. And the reason that I know it is because I listen closely to how many of you talk when you are straying or running or veering off track with God. I hear people say it like this. They come into my office and they say, well, I haven't really been walking with God for a while and I've been kind of doing my own thing. And then they say something like this. And I guess I have to make my way back to him. You ever heard a Christian say that? Kind of insinuating that that we're over here and God is way over here. And though that's not a terrible image because, you know, you did veer from him, I'm going to show you in a second what you might not have realized is that he's been chasing you through all the running 
And, and as Paul the Apostle would say in Acts 17, he's a lot closer to you than you even realize. See, we think he's, that God is waiting for us to make the long trek back to him. The reality, however, what Jonah teaches us is that he's right behind us when we run and what he's gonna want from us, and we're gonna explore this a little bit later in a second, but then much more next week, what he really wants from us more than anything is simply to turn, to turn around and face him once again. That's where God is when we run. He's right behind us. And so here's what we learn from Jonah's experience with God as it relates to you and me. And it's our only and main point today. And that is that when we run from God, he runs right behind us. Did you know that? When we run from God, he runs right behind us. I want to do a little exercise right now that might seem incredibly simple. I think I've done it before here up on the stage in other contexts, but it's a visual exercise to show us uh, what this might look like. And I'm, I'm going to need your imagination for this a little bit. You'll see right right now. But I'm going to call Neil up uh, with his mask on, so he's being responsible. And Neil's going to help us with this little exercise here. And, and so Neil is going to represent Neil, a, a follower of Jesus, who is fallen and human and at times runs from God. Here's where I need your imagination. I'm gonna represent God, which is a huge stretch, but for our purposes today, you'll see why this is important. So notice right now that Neil and I are, are, are fairly close and Neil's walking with me and he's doing just fine and walking with God and all of that, but say for the sake of argument, Neil decides to veer, he decides to wander, he decides to run like we've been looking at in this series. I'm gonna have Neil in a second here run to the other end of our, our platform here. And Neil, as you run like you did last night, I want you to just normally run. And when you get to the end, just stop. Don't turn around or anything, just stop. And I'm gonna show you guys what God does when we run. So go, run from God. So where is God right now as opposed to Neil? He's right here. See, we tend to think that when we run from God, that he is static, that he stays put, and he's over here, and now there's this huge distance. What the storm teaches us, what the whale teaches us, what the God of heaven teaches us, is that he is right here. So Neil, turn around. So when Neil turns, God is right there. Give it up for Neil and for the uh, wonderful prop that he was. Don't ever forget this, gang, because this is what the opening chapter of Jonah reveals to us. That when we run from God, he runs after us. No, he chases us. And he does this, we're going to explore this in just a second, because he loves us. And though we don't realize it at the time, because our back is turned from him, that if we just turn around, the Bible calls it repentance. We're going to explore that next week. If we would just but turn to him when we're running, we're going to find that he is right there. So on a relational level, there is no long trek back. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to jump through a bunch of spiritual hoops. You were taught these things, some of you, in your legalistic church. And I'm telling you, it's not true. God, in his grace, chases after you. And he wants you to turn toward him. And it takes faith and courage to do so. But man, you would find that he's right there. And though I just used the word right now, 
If you're dialing, if you're tracking with me at all right now, we're bumping up against a very holy moment in our understanding of God and who he is and how he acts in our lives. Because what we're realizing once again is that God is a God of incredible grace. That God, even when we are most sinful and most rejecting of him, says, I think I'm gonna respond with grace. Now let's wrestle with this for a second right now because some of you doubt me. I, I know because, well, you're, you're critical thinkers, you're cynical, maybe just like me. One of the things that commentators wrestle with when they read chapter one of Jonah here, and I think it's a legitimate issue, it's an exegetical interpretive dilemma of chapter one, is that when we see the imagery of the sea and the storm and the whale, now, now don't miss this, is that punitive on God's part? Is he mad at Jonah and after him? Or is it restorative on God's part? In other words, is the imagery of the sea and the storm and this whale that swallows Jonah, is it punishment or love? Is God angry with Jonah and out to get him? Or is his grace chasing Jonah and trying anything he can do to get his attention and get him to turn back. And believe it or not, there's actually some commentators that that argue that it's punishment. I I don't think they're right. In fact, I think they're dead wrong. But I respect the the academic ability to try to figure out the text. To me, this is clearly about grace. Jonah in chapter two next week is actually gonna say when he finally gets to the end of his rope in the belly of the whale, he's gonna say this beautiful phrase. He's gonna say, let's not forfeit the grace that could be ours. In other words, he's gonna realize that even in the belly of the whale, even in the storm, even in the the sea, that God is chasing after him as a loving father chases an erring toddler. So the storm, the casting of lots, the tossing overboard, the great fish, now don't miss this, because it's very important for where your life is right now, some of you, are vehicles of God's grace. They were actions of God who was chasing Jonah right behind him the whole time, trying to get his attention so that he might turn back to him. And again, if you're dialing into that at all right now, you're saying, but Jamie, that that storm was brutal. That storm was painful. It was even violent. And Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days. I mean, that's gross. And the answer to all that is, yes, you're exactly right. And sometimes when we run from God, God will allow, even cause, difficult things to come into our life. And you as a follower of Jesus are tempted to think, well, I guess he must hate me, he must not love me. Jonah teaches you the opposite. He's allowing those difficult things, maybe even causing them to come into your life precisely because he loves you. Precisely because he's chasing after you. Precisely because he sees you just like Jonah and in his stubborn love and grace, he says, I don't mind bringing some difficult things into your life so that you just might turn and find where your spiritual bread is buttered once again. If you don't believe me, the New Testament will actually go on to spell this out theologically. The New Testament makes a distinction between punishment and discipline. And it argues in Romans 1 and 2 that the wrath of God is reserved for unbelievers at the end of time. That there is a wrath of God in which he will punish wrongdoing, but the whole reason Jesus died for us was to get us out of God's wrath. And so now as believers in Jesus, Hebrews 12 tells us that God will discipline 
his church. He will discipline his followers, but he won't punish them. And the difference is, is that punishment is all about wrath and just deserts. Discipline is all about love and restoration. It's just that they're both painful, but it's an important distinction. And God's hounding grace at times will come through the storm and the sea. And though it's no fun, what you need to see is that it's still all about his grace. He's chasing after us runners. That's what's behind it all. I, uh, I got to be careful in this series because I, I'm, I'm so versed and experienced in running from God after following him for 40 years that I, I have so many stories I could tell you it's not funny. And, and it's not that I don't love God. I love God with every fiber in my being or I wouldn't be your pastor. I wake up every day thinking about him. I go to bed thinking about him. I talk to him all the time. I, I read and study his word. I've committed my life to his service. But I so relate to Jonah because in my fallen nature, I, I run from him a lot. I don't run to sinful behaviors because I still want to be your pastor, but I, but I do run from him in, in a myriad of ways. I distance myself from God too often. And, and so I'm, I'm also very experienced with the fact that, that when I run, he, he's willing to take some, some drastic measures to call me back to him. I remember one of the very first times I ran from God, you're going to get a kick out of this. It was 24 hours after I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. <laughs> I accepted Jesus on March 11th, 1981. I was a junior in high school and I clearly accepted the Lord. I mean, I, you could never talk me out of that. I, I, I realized I was a sinner. I realized that, that God was real. I realized I needed grace. I realized in Jesus that there was atonement for my sins and I prayed a prayer and I meant it to receive him as Lord and Savior into my life. It was an amazing evening. And the next morning I woke up and I'm a junior in high school and I hadn't been raised in much of a Christian home at all. And, and, and as I started to think about what I had done, I knew that there was going to be some consequences to that. I, I knew that the call on my life now, like Jonah, was going to involve like having me having to give up boozing and, and carousing and all the things that I did as a junior in high school in a secular town in America in a secular home. And, and I started to think about all that and, and, and the drastic changes. And I, I can remember thinking, I, 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 don't, I didn't sign up for all that. I, I don't want to do that. And, and it began an 18-month journey of absolute misery as I was running from God and the call of discipleship, the call of submission, the call of obedience on my life, but knowing clearly that I'm saved. And the reason I know I was saved is that the further I got from God, now watch this, the more miserable I became. Can any of you relate? I mean, before I accepted Jesus, I never felt miserable about being distant from God because he wasn't really in my life at that time. At least I hadn't made a decision to receive him as Lord and Savior. But now that Jesus was my Savior and the Holy Spirit hadn't filled me, the further I got from God, the more miserable I became. I went off to college at that time. And, 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 and again, I, I, I know this is a terrible way of looking at it, but, but I just went on an all-out sin fest in early college because I, I wanted so badly to get away from God and I, I ran to all these things that I shouldn't have run to. But I was so miserable in my spirit. God would allow me no peace, no joy at all in my life. <laughs> in fact, it got so bad that one point I was leaving my college campus to go down to another campus to visit some friends from high school and we were gonna party all weekend. And, and, and I knew that it was wrong. I knew it was not what God wanted for me to do. And I've never done this since then. I, I prayed a prayer of forgiveness before I went and sinned. You're supposed to pray after, but I knew I was going to do it, so I figured I might as well cover myself now. 
And, and I can still remember grabbing my Bible, which I didn't read back then, but I, I knew it was a holy book. And I remember grabbing it and throwing it in my bag. I'm a freshman in college. And, and, and I thought, why are you bringing a Bible? You don't read it. And I thought, well, if things get really, really bad, I just might need it. That's how pathetic my life was. And what I didn't realize back then, but I do now, is that in my first experience of running from God, he was running right after me that whole time. He was in that storm. He was in that sea. He was in my misery. And again, I know this date too, November 23rd, 1982. I was in the belly of the whale. I'd finally had enough. And as we'll talk about next week, I turned to him. I made a massive recommitment. I said, enough is enough. Time out, God. I'm ready to submit everything to you. And when I turned, you know what I found? He was right there. And his grace and his forgiveness overwhelmed me. And though I haven't had a time of, you know, running like that since then, again, if I did, I couldn't be your pastor. The reality is, is that in smaller ways or maybe even still in big internal ways, I've experienced that since then. Uh, Francis Thompson, uh, let me finish a little bit of part of his poem, would say this. He goes on to write after he sets up this idea of, 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 of him running from God. He then talks about what God did in response. He says, from those strong feet, meaning God's feet, capital F, from those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase, an unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and then a voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. You'll find no peace apart from me, Francis. Let's look at another stanza, one more. He says, still with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, came on the following feet and a voice above their beat, not shelters thee who will not shelter me. In other words, you will find no shelter, Francis, unless you find shelter in me. Or as Augustine would say, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And you see, what Thompson experienced is this God who was chasing after him, that voice, those feet that were beating. And that's the only thing I need you to see today is that God is the hound of heaven for you as well. And one last thought before we go to the communion table, and this is a really important thought, not just for you, but for everybody around you. We tend to think that God only chases Christians. Do you all understand that he's chasing everybody else as well? It's in the text. There's actually two groups of runners or two runners in Jonah 1. You got Jonah running from God. But but who else is running from God? The, the, The Ninevites and then also those Phoenician sailors. And in that storm and in that sea, God was after those sailors as well. We don't have time to look at it. It's for another sermon, but it's a fascinating uh, journey that these sailors were on. They initially have fear when the storm hits there in verse five and they get all afraid. And then there's this spiritual motivation of the captain saying, hey, let's call out to God as we understand him. And then uh, there's the realization of who God really is. As Jonah tells him, this is the God of heaven, you know, this is the, the real God who's after us. And then you have this respectful heart of the sailors in verses 13 and 14 as they say, hey, we don't wanna get God even more mad by throwing Jonah overboard and then verses 14 to 16 you got to read them on your own later there's a prayer and repentance of the sailors 
as they make sacrifices to God, as they turn toward him. So it's actually ironic. In the book of Jonah, you have chapter one ending with the godly prophet still with his back turned to God and these rough and tumble secular sailors who have turned to him. Only the Bible could have a story like that. And whether the sailors were saved or not or became a bunch of Jewish priests or whatever, I don't know, it doesn't tell us anything like that. But at the very least, we have these sailors turning to God and seeking him as he truly is. And that's instructive for us because it tells us that God isn't just after Jonah, he's after even the rough and tumble sailors. So as we look at culture around us today and things going crazy, please be very careful about judging all of that and getting angry at all of that. I know it's hard to picture a Christian getting angry at culture, but just go with me on it for a second. Because God is chasing them just like he's chasing you. And what he wants from all of us is to turn toward him. And the same grace he offers you is a grace that he offers them. So as we wrap up right now and go to the table, I'm just gonna ask you two questions. First, are you running from him in any area of your life right now? Are you? And then secondly, if you are, do you realize where he is as you run? He's right with you, running after you. Jesus would say it this way. If I got 100 sheep or 99 sheep and one of them goes off into the hills, I'm gonna run after that one and get that sheep. He's running after you when you stray. And all you have to do is turn. You have to face him. He stands ready and waiting for you to do that. We're gonna explore that more next week. But what a great opportunity now during this communion, Lord's Supper time, for you to do a little bit of turning to God if you're running and realize he's right there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing story, true account that we have in the Old Testament here of Jonah. And Lord, truth be known, it's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament only because I relate so well. And Father, I thank you that you saw fit to include a story of a godly man, a good man that we can relate to who pined after you each moment of each day, who also had feet of clay and was very fallen and human in his ability to run from you. And Lord, we're learning a lot in this book. <clears throat> we're learning that, that, that we're all runners, but that you run faster. You run more than we ever could in chasing us. And that though sometimes it's in the storm, it's in the whale, it's in the waves, it's in the wind, it's all about your grace. And so Lord, Matt, may that be comfort, may that be motivation to any of us today who have some turning to do. We want to turn now through these communion elements and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.